Welcome to the Mount. Welcome to the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we begin a new series in which we're going to study the most famous sermon ever given. When the Sermon on the Mount was given, it was given in the context of what we all just experienced. We all just experienced silence for two minutes. For two minutes, you were expecting me to say something, and I didn't say one word. And I imagine some of you, because I can see your faces, got annoyed. Like, is the sound working right? Is this guy, like, is he getting stage fright? Why did they put him up there? Is he forgetting what he's planned to say? Some of you were getting anxious. Like, come on, Preston, you can do it. I just cheered for you. Come on. And I imagine some of you were apathetic, or you still are. I mean, unfortunately for some of you, it doesn't matter what I do. If I lay down, if I jump up and down, this is you. <laughs> it doesn't matter, like, what? Like, you, your face just doesn't change, and, and I will pray for your soul. <laughs> some of you fell asleep. So if your neighbor fell asleep, just elbow them in the gut, cough on them, and say, COVID. And uh, the, Lord, the Lord will be pleased with you helping someone stay awake in church. You know, ultimately, all of us in those two minutes, we felt awkward. <laughs> Thank you for the affirmation. Just, just bring the affirmation later with the word, okay? But I did that intentionally because I somehow wanted all of us to experience, at least on a small scale, I wanted us to feel what it was like to be the nation of Israel when the Sermon on the Mount was originally given. You see, at that point in biblical history, God had not said a word to Israel in 400 years. The last book in your Old Testament and the last prophet to speak to Israel is Malachi, or was Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, God speaks through Malachi. He says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God spoke those words, and then silence. God didn't say another word for 400 years. Church, did you hear what I said? He didn't say a word for 400 years. Can you imagine what that was like? Can you imagine what it's like to expect God to say something and then he doesn't? Year after year after year, all the way to 400 years. You waited for me to speak for two minutes. They waited for God to speak for 400 years. That's the context of the Sermon on the Mount. That's how important this sermon was and still is. This sermon was God's first words to Israel in 400 years. God had not addressed the nation of Israel for 400 years, but all of that changed with this sermon. When Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, he broke the silence. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What happened when God broke the silence? If you're taking notes, go ahead and write that question down. What happened when God broke the silence? I want to answer that question this morning because I think it will give us an overview of the sermon, which is going to set the stage for everything we're going to talk about in the next several months. But I also want to answer that question because what happened when God broke the silence 2,000 years ago in the Sermon on the Mount is just as applicable to us today as it was back then. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Sermon on the Mount. 
It's found in Matthew chapter 5, and it's going to run through chapter 7. Oh, and by the way, we're going to do something really crazy this morning, super crazy. Uh, We're going to read the entire sermon. I know, I know, crazy, right? Like, what in the world am I thinking reading three chapters of the Bible in church? What's wrong with this guy? Listen, the Word of God is powerful, and especially this sermon, especially these three chapters of the Word of God. One commentator said this, quote, Christian writings from the close of the New Testament up until the Council of Nicaea in 8325 Quote, Matthew chapter 5, more frequently and extensively than any single chapter of the Bible. And they quote Matthew chapter 5 to 7, more frequently and extensively than any other three chapters in the entire Bible. These three chapters were the most quoted chapters of the Bible by Christians for the first 300 years of Christianity. And also, these three chapters are recognized as the cornerstone of Christianity. Another commentator said this, In the history of Christian thought, indeed in the history of those observing Christianity, the Sermon on the Mount has been considered the epitome of the teaching of Jesus, and therefore for many, the essence of Christianity. With as significant as the sermon was when it was first given, and as significant as it has been throughout church history, and as significant as it is still today, I think it will be okay for us to begin our series by reading the entire sermon. Amen? Plus, well, not everyone said amen, so get over it. We're doing it. (laughs) Plus, the thing is, I'm going to read it at two times speed like you guys know I can do, and then we'll get to the question, okay? (laughs) Let me take a drink of water first, though. (laughs) All right. I'm going to sit down as I read it, not because I can't stand for a long time, but because This begins by saying Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down. I thought it'd be really cool if I actually had this memorized and could preach it to you like Jesus did, but uh, I'm not there yet. So I'm going to read it to you, but I want you to visualize this in mind. I want you to picture you're in Israel 2,000 years ago, and you have, I know I'm not anything close to what Jesus looked like, so sorry, but just picture a Middle Eastern man here, probably much more in shape than me. And picture him delivering the sermon to you when you haven't heard from God in 400 years. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge of the garden you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you're right, I cause you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for on the grounds of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool uh, of God, or excuse me, the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone have, uh, sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Surely I say to you that they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they receive their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth, uh, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you a little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, where there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That's a word from God. Amen? Amen. All right, worship team, come on up. No, I'm just kidding. We're just getting started, so buckle up. So before we go any further, I want to just pray, and then let's answer that question. God, thank you so much for everyone here, and thank you for your word. Thank you for that sermon. I pray that you would open our eyes to understand what it says. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so now having read the sermon, we have the context. I want to answer the question, what happened when God broke the silence? There are three answers to that question, and each of them are going to go like this. You'll see it on the screen in just a second. When God broke the silence, fill in the blank. That's how each answer is going to go. And the first answer is on the screen. When God broke the silence, number one, the new Moses was revealed. Number one, the new Moses was revealed. For this point to make sense, I have to make sure that all of us are on the same page with who Moses was. Moses was the guy who had the crazy birth story. Do you guys remember? Uh, this guy was trying to kill a bunch of babies. And so, like, uh, uh, he, uh, sorry, 
that distracted me. Uh, this guy, the Pharaoh said to kill all the male children, and uh, uh, Moses' mom didn't want that to happen, so she put him in a basket, threw him in the Nile River, and he floated down, and all of a sudden Pharaoh's daughter sees him and says, okay, I'm going to uh, pick him up and make him my own, and that's actually what Moses means, to draw him out of water, so that's how he got his name. He then grew up in Pharaoh's house, which was pretty nice, considering every other Jew was a slave at that time, uh, but he eventually lost this great standing he had in Egypt because uh, as he got older, he is uh, walking around one day and he sees one of the Egyptian taskmasters beating one of the Israelites and he gets upset about this. So he goes over and he kills the man. That's reasonable, right? He kills him and then he thinks no one knows, but then the next day he realizes people do know and Pharaoh's going to try to kill him. So he runs away out of Egypt and he ends up becoming a shepherd in the land of Midian. He got married and he's living his best life until God shows up in a burning bush. And then God shows up in, in that burning bush and tells him, I'm going to use you to go save Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. And so Moses goes back to Egypt. He tells the Israelites the good news. And then he began his battle with Pharaoh. Um, and then 10 plagues happened to Pharaoh because he was, you know, fighting with God and he ends up losing. So after 10 plagues, Pharaoh gives in and lets the people go. So Moses and all of Israel triumphantly leave Egypt and begin their journey to the promised land. And at the beginning of the journey, God enters into a covenant with Israel where if they obey him in his law, then they will be blessed. But if they disobey him, they will be cursed. And unfortunately, the people did not keep the law. In fact, even Moses disobeyed God. And as a result, that first generation coming out of Egypt, God told them, none of you are entering the promised land, but your children will do it for you since you disobeyed. And for the next 40 years, Israel wandered in the wilderness until the entire generation passed away. Okay, now with all that being said, as background of who Moses was, in review, I want you to hear a very interesting statement that Moses said before he died. Deuteronomy chapter 18, I'm going to read verse 15 and then verses 17 and 19. Moses says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Okay, so I want you to everyone, everyone look at the screen and or at your Bibles, whatever you're looking at, and notice what just happened here. Moses told the nation of Israel before he died that God was going to send someone to them that was going to be just like him. God was going to send a new Moses, not Moses reincarnated, but as it says, someone like him. So from this point forward, Israel began looking for a new Moses. Who was going to be the next Moses? Who was going to be the next great leader of Israel to save them? And from this point forward, many good leaders, some even could be described as great, actually rose up in Israel. But none of them compared to Moses. None of them were even on that level. It's kind of like Michael Jordan, right? Michael Jordan is on this level, and then you got everybody else. Anyone who thinks anyone else should be up there, you're a liar, okay? <laughs> LeBron James is like, and then you got Michael Jordan, okay? Um, <laughs> amen, thank you. Moses was in a league of his own. He was in a league of his own until Jesus came. Jesus was slash is the new Moses. It, when you study the life of Jesus, especially as Matthew paints it, it's actually so fascinating to realize how many parallels there are between Jesus and Moses. And I want to just point out four of them to you. Again, there are so many, but let me just point out four. The first parallel between Moses and Jesus is their birth. Did you ever notice that both Jesus and Moses were born at a time that an evil ruler tried to kill them? 
Remember, Exodus 1.15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them at the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Exodus 1.22, then he tries again. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So the ruler at Moses' birth tried to kill him. And then the same thing happens when Jesus was born, Matthew 2.16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where Jesus was born. He was trying to kill Jesus. And all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So first parallel is their birth. The second parallel between Moses and Jesus is their timing. Do you remember how at the beginning of our time together, I told you that the Sermon on the Mount was delivered after 400 years of silence? Well, in the same way, God did not send Moses to Israel until 400 years of being in captivity. In fact, God actually prophesied this to Abraham, Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Notice, both of them came after 400 years. The third parallel between Moses and Jesus is their mission. I mentioned it earlier, but Moses' mission was to save Israel from slavery in Egypt. Again, just to be clear, Exodus 3, 9, 10. And now behold, God's speaking to Moses. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, that you will save them. And Jesus was also sent to save God's people, but not from slavery to a foreign nation, but slavery to our own sin. The angel Gabriel prophesied this when he was born. Matthew 1, 21. She, Mary, will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will, what? save his people from their sins. They both were on a mission to save their people. The fourth parallel between Moses and Jesus is how they received slash gave the law. And that brings us to where we're at right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when Moses got the law, do you remember what he did? It was very significant to the people of Israel. They went to a mountain. None of the people were allowed to go up on the mountain, but Moses did. Moses went up the mountain, got the law, and brought it down to the people. Exodus 19, verses 2 and 3. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Well, in the same way as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, notice what it says. Matthew 5, 1, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And then what did we just read? He then went through the law. Many other parallels exist, but I'll rest my case with those four. Jesus is the new Moses. Now, I want you to listen to me, church. This is so important for us today. This is actually very, very practical. I want you to, for you to see how practical this is, I want you to picture this in your mind. Picture in your mind, put a scene in your mind. If you have to close your eyes, do whatever you got to do. But picture in your mind what it looked like for Moses to go to Egypt and lead the people of Israel out of slavery, out to the, uh, to the land of freedom. What do you think that looks like? What do you see? Do you see people cheering Are are people crying tears of joy? Are people hugging their family and friends with excitement and relief? Doesn't it look like an exciting picture? Moses going to Egypt, we're heading out, and when it finally happened, what it looked like for them to take the spoils from Egypt and they triumphantly march out, what does that scene look like in your mind? Do you see it? Do you see people excited? Okay, now here's what I want to do. I want you to remember, Jesus is supposed to be the new Moses. He is the new Moses. So what he does is similar to Moses, but bigger and better. I want you to picture in your mind, what does it look like for Jesus to lead you out of the slavery you are in to your sin? Try to picture in your mind, what does it look like for him to lead you out of slavery in your sin? Now here, let me do this, because I understand it's kind of hard to do that, right? You're thinking like, wait, I, 
how do I do that? It's different because it's not a foreign nation, it's sin. But here, let me help you out because I want you to get this picture real quickly. I want you to pretend in your mind that your sins are people. Pretend in your mind, imagine in your mind that adultery is there and it's a person. And I want you to imagine in your mind that pride, it's a person. And I want you to imagine um, uh, whatever, uh, greed, it's a person. Whatever sin you're struggling with, it's people. And I want you to picture in your mind, Jesus comes in to save you from that, deliver you from the slavery. What does it look like? Are you following him away from your sins, triumphantly excited, cheering and jumping and hugging people and excited, crying tears of joy? I hope some of you can say yes. But you know what my fear is? My fear is that many of us, that's not the scene. You know what the scene actually looks like if you're being honest? No, Jesus, I don't want to go. I want to stay here, a slave to my sin. No, Jesus, I want to be a slave to my pride. Let me stay here. I want to be prideful. No, Jesus, don't take me away. I want to keep looking at porn every single day. Make me a slave. Let me stay here. No, I want to be a slave to my greed. No, I want to be a slave to sin. Jesus, don't make me go. Some of you, instead of leaving your sin triumphantly with Jesus, you look about as foolish as someone does who's a slave, has a chance for freedom, and says, no, I want to stay a slave. Church, when we realize that Jesus is the new Moses, and he came to free us from our sin, like Moses came to free the Israelites, it becomes clear that when we hang on to our sin, we look ridiculous. We look like someone who says, no, let me stay a slave. Church, I don't know what sins you're struggling with, but quit clinging on to it. Whatever it is, let go and follow Jesus, the new Moses, into freedom. What happened when God broke the silence? When God broke the silence, number one, the new Moses was revealed, and number two, the correct interpretation of the law was revealed. The correct interpretation of the law was revealed. Okay, so for this point, this is going to be super applicable for so many people in here. For those of you who have kids or those who work in youth ministry or do some kind of teaching, you know that kids have this ability, it's supernatural power, to hang on to your words so well that they actually miss the point of what you said. Can I get an Amen. Let me give you an example of what I mean. I'm a teacher at ACS, teach a 10th grade Bible class. And I have the kids, um, I like to keep it very discussion-based, so I have them read their book on their own and do what's called a reading assignment. So that way, when we come to class, we can just discuss it, okay? And uh, it's, it's a very simple reading assignment. All they have to do is open the book, find the key terms, define them, and then just write the section headings and just summarize it, write down key ideas, what stood out to them, etc. That's all they have to do. It doesn't have to be a word length or anything. I just want to see that they actually engage with it, and then we talk about it. Okay, well, I had this student this year who I, uh, I pick up the reading assignments, and I'm looking at it, and it just looks a little too good for a 10th grader. The words he's using, I'm like, this kid does not know these words. <laughs> so the kids are sitting over there and doing their thing, and I'm like, carry on. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to my desk, open up my course textbook. I'm like, wait a second. This is the exact words from here. And I was like, wait a second, did he do this for the entire assignment? And so for five minutes, I just started going through Trace, and I realized this kid plagiarized the entire reading assignment. All he did was literally take quotes from the book and then type it out and then turn that in as his reading assignment. And so I called the kid up and I said, hey, uh, come here, so-and-so. He comes over, and uh, I, I said, uh, hey, what, what, what's the problem here? <laughs> and he goes, oh, 
Did I forget a couple quotation marks? <laughs> I said, I'm going to give you one more chance to answer that question. <laughs> and he says, is it, uh, is it plagiarized? I say, is it plagiarized? The only thing original on here is your name. Like, what do you mean? And he then says to me, he says, well, I was doing, these were the things that stood out to me. So I wrote down the quotes that stood out the most. That's what you said, right? And I thought, you've got to be kidding. Like, yes, that's what I said, but that you totally missed the point. The point was not to just write down word for word the quotations from the book. It was supposed to say, like, what stood out to you in your own words. But, you know, I can't be mad at the kid because I've done the thing, that, that, that same thing several times. And I'm sure many of you have done the same thing. You take someone's words and you hang on to it just enough and you know it's not the actual point, but then you just do whatever you, I've done that my entire life. Not anymore, I think. <laughs> but as a kid, oh, I did that all the time. And here's the thing, people have done that for centuries. In fact, people were doing that in Jesus's day as well. They would hang on to words so much that they actually missed the entire point. Do you remember when I was reading the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus would say things like, you've heard that it was said, blank, but I say this. You've heard that it was said, blank, but I say this. Um, do you remember that? Yes, no. Do you remember that? Okay, five of you. The rest of you? Okay. <laughs> Just so you know, when he was doing that, he was quoting the Old Testament. And when he said, but I say this to you, just so you know, he was not changing the law. He wasn't getting rid of it. He wasn't abolishing it. He wasn't making it harder. Remember what he said in, in chapter 5? He said, I came to fulfill the law, not one iota, not one dot is going to pass away. So that's not what he was doing. What he was doing there was he was correctly interpreting the law. He was telling people, this is what it means. He was correcting their misunderstanding. They were thinking, oh, the word just says don't murder, but it doesn't say anything about being angry and calling people mean names. It doesn't say anything about that, so I guess I can do that. And Jesus is like, what? You've missed the entire point. Just because you don't murder them, if you gossip about them, it's just as bad. Oh, well, the word just says don't commit adultery, but I sure can enjoy God's good creation looking at them. How many of you guys heard some dumb high school kid say that? I'm just enjoying God's creation. What? Okay, you've missed, it's Jesus. You've missed the point. Even if you don't commit adultery, if you just look at it with that lustful intent, you're not pure. You've missed it. And that is the point Jesus is trying to make in that section. And he's getting at something that so many of us struggle with. He's getting at how so many of us, we miss the heart of God in the word of God. So many of us, we miss the heart of God in the word of God. We become legal scholars and we're looking for loopholes. Oh, you know, um, okay, D divorce. Um, okay, it, it, it's allowed. It, it, okay, under what stipulation is it? And what about this? What if her mother's maiden name is Johnson? Just making that up. But you're looking for all kinds of loopholes. You're like you're a, 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 a what is that? What's it called? An attorney or something, a lawyer. You're trying to find a loophole in here. And then it's like, you've missed the entire point. What God brought together, don't separate. No divorce. Oh, like, but, 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 like, okay, but it just says no fornication. What does it mean if, like, we're just, like, cuddling? You've missed the point. You've missed the point. You've missed the heart of God in the word of God. Church, let's not do that anymore. Don't miss the heart of God in the word of God. When God broke the silence, the correct interpretation of law was revealed, and that included the heart behind the words. Learn from what happened back then. 
Don't be like Israel who had to be corrected after 400 years. Saying, look, oh, I'm keeping the law. Don't let God come to you and say, no, you're not keeping the law. You know what you're doing. When God broke the silence, number one, the new Moses was revealed. Number two, the correct interpretation of the law was revealed. And number three, the biggest need of mankind was revealed. The biggest need of mankind was revealed. This is the last point, and it's so simple. But I want to make sure everyone in here gets it. The Sermon on the Mount reveals an ethic and a morality that we should all strive for, absolutely. But it also reveals my biggest need, which is I need some serious help. All of us need some serious help. If we take Jesus' word seriously, then do you realize none of us are good enough for the kingdom of heaven? None of Is anyone here like, oh, no, I'm good? Like, seriously, like, when you look at that sermon... Do you realize none of us should be going to heaven? Because ain't none of you doing that. I'm not doing that. Not like, not even close. Listen to this. Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Hey, by show of hands, who's more righteous than uh, the scribes and the Pharisees? Anyone in here? Do you realize how righteous they were? They like were, they had disciplined lives. So much so that when it came to purity, they were known for like trying to show off the scars on their head because they didn't want to look at a girl, so they would walk around like this and they'd run into walls. Like these people were righteous. None of us, but just in case some of you are like, oh no, I'm on that level, I'm on that level. Okay, well, a little bit later in Jesus' sermon, he raises the bar even more. Matthew 5, 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hey, by show of hands, who in here is Perfect. Good. I'm glad you're honest. The point of this sermon is to point out that none of us are good enough. And it should drive us to this desperate place where we get on our knees and we're like, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this. Have mercy on me. And that's the point. Amen? That's the point because Jesus is speaking to a group of people who think they've made it. He's speaking to a nation who thinks they know how to please God. And Jesus comes in and he's like, oh, really? Let me just tell you what the law actually means. And it should cause all of us to say, no, you know what? I am not self-sufficient. Absolutely not even close. I need Jesus. Jesus is the only one whose righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus is the only one who was perfect, who is perfect. We will never attain that righteousness or perfection on our own. But when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, his righteousness and his perfection becomes our own. And here's the thing. When we put our faith and trust in him, something supernatural happens. Your heart changes, and you can actually begin to do these things. But just so you know, without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit changing you, you cannot do this. Scripture says on your own, your heart is desperately wicked, it's deceitful. You will do whatever you can do to get things that you want, that benefits you. But you will never do things from pure motives, like he says, blessed are those who are pure. You will never be that without Jesus changing your heart. So if you're in here and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you haven't gone to him and just said, Jesus, I am not good enough. I need you and what you did on the cross for me. Then I would just beg you to do that today. Don't leave here without getting right with Jesus because that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to say you can't do it. But once we put our faith and trust in him and he gives us his spirit, we can actually start to strive to do these things. What happened when God broke the silence as we summarize? When God broke the silence, number one, the new Moses was revealed. 
Number two, the correct interpretation of the law was revealed. And number three, the biggest need of mankind was revealed.